I don't know how much all of you know about the Jewish faith today, but I suspect you know quite a bit. And I suspect everyone here this morning knows that someone's Jewish heritage is passed down through the mother's side. That in considering your Jewishness, it comes from your mother. Meaning, of course, that if your father is not Jewish, but your mother is, by Jewish law, you are Jewish. However, if your father is Jewish and your mother is not, you are not, under Jewish law, Jewish. And that is how it stands today. So when I was studying for our passage in Acts for today, Acts 16, 1 through 5, I was struck by an inconsistency in just exactly who was considered Jewish in the first century A.D. Uh, here's the passage, and we'll, we'll read it. Uh, I don't usually read it first, but we're going to read it first. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because all of the Jews because of all the Jews who were in these places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered uh, to them for ob- observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased numbers daily. And if I have trouble reading here, this wasn't because of small print. I bought a new printer. My printer is double printing pages. I'm getting a new one on Friday. Aaron doesn't know that yet, but it's on its way. I can hardly read my, uh, my pr- what's printed here. So forgive me if I'm slow on some of these. The rest, however, I hand wrote. And that'll make it even harder to read. So what struck me here was that Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. So under Jewish law... Timothy was Jewish, right? Jewish mother, Gentile father, you're Jewish. Jewish father, Gentile mother, you're not Jewish. So, Timothy is Jewish. Why then did Paul find it necessary to circumcise Timothy because of all the Jews in the area who knew knew his father was Greek? But more importantly... If Timothy's mother was Jewish, why wasn't he already circumcised? What's going on here? Well, well, at the time of Acts 16, Jewishness was passed down through the father. It was not passed down through the mother. We were reading today uh, in the Old Testament. I don't know why I in the Old Testament. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. Do you notice who, who they're referencing here? They're referencing the fathers. Jewishness back then. The, the Levite priests, the priests of the temple were 
to be sons of Levi. This is how Jewishness was passed down in these days. It was passed down through the father's line. It was what is called a patrilineal society, meaning the line came down from the potter, the father. The opposite of that, because I'm going to be using these terms, is a matrilineal society. That is one that comes down through the mother. Uh, that everything was ordained by your potter. Who was your father? That's what was important. It was not matrilineal based on your mother. So, when did the change occur? And I, I think you'll all be with me on this, okay? When did this change occur? I want you to know, and what I say is not suspect, it's actually true. I could not find this in any Christian writings. I couldn't find it in commentaries. So, what do I do? I go to the Jewish sources on the internet, the respected Chabad.org, uh, My Jewish Learning is Good, there's a few others. The only place I could find this referenced, and I found it universally referenced in Jewish sources, is that between 10 AD and 70 AD, this change came in and was institutionalized. Now, if you've been here with me for, for these teachings, an awful lot of things changed between 10 AD and 70 AD. And I know you know the answer to this, but what happened in 10 AD to 70 AD? Well, let's see, Jesus was 13 years old. What happened in the temple when Jesus was 13 years old? Um, well, that's right. Um, he appeared there and studied with the teachers when his parents didn't know he was there and left him there. We suspect that who he spoke to was Gamaliel, Simeon, and my old friend who I'll never forget, their uh, grandfather, uh, Hillel. Okay? So at, in 10 AD, Jesus was beginning his study. Then, you know, we get to 30 AD, we're into Jesus' ministry. Up comes his crucifixion and resurrection. The church starts. The church age is from 35 um, to 70 AD. The church age is still going on, mind you. But the, the beginning of the church, 35 to 70 AD, and then comes the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And they are universal in Jewish circles to say that this change occurred specifically between 10 AD and 70 AD. The change was made in the writings of our old friend the Mishnah. It was written down there that it was now determined that the Jewishness was be to go through the mother. And it strikes me that just as the Old Testament was the pre-first century scriptures for Israel and the New Testament in the first century, in the post-first century, words from God concerning his church the Old Testament was pre-first century. The New Testament was post-first century. The, pre, the Old Testament was concerning the nation of Israel and their relationship to God. The New Testament 
is how to understand the Old Testament and to see the ushering in of the church age. And where the New Testament is the continuation and explanation of the Old Testament, the Mishnah in many ways is not the continuation of the Talmud, but it changes almost every significant rule of Judaism laid down in the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud. And the other major difference between the scriptures and the Talmud, of course, is that the scriptures are the word of God. And the Talmud was written by men as a commentary and as additional laws for the Jews. So last week, we saw that a sharp division arose between Paul and Barnabas on whether to take John Mark on the second missionary outreach the two men had planned. Barnabas was just as adamant that John Mark be included. This impasse led to the decision for the two great missionaries to go their separate ways. Barnabas taking John Mark with him to Cyprus, as we saw, and Paul traveling with Silas. We ended at verse 41 of chapter 15, which read, He, that is Paul, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. A chapter, uh, verse 1a of chapter 16, which we come to today, says, uh, Paul came to Derbe and Lystra. Okay, that's verse 1a. When Paul told Barnabas he wanted to visit the churches that were started in the wake of their first missionary uh, trip, my somewhat orderly mind thought we would sail to Perga and then travel to city in Antioch and then down to Iconium and then go on to Lystra and Derbe. But that is not what Paul did. Paul went in reverse order. And why did he decide to go in reverse order? Scripture doesn't say, and I suspect Paul didn't know why he was going in reverse order. But instead of sailing, Paul and Silas instead headed north by land. Now they had to cross a major mountain range. And crossing it brought them down to Tarsus. Now, you might recall the city Tarsus. There was somebody we know that was called Saul of Tarsus, you know. Uh, who is now the Apostle Paul. So he started by heading back just as Barnabas had gone to Cyprus, his home country. The second trip, for reasons we don't know, perhaps he had family he wanted to see. We don't know why he went to Tarsus first. We just know he had to go to Tarsus because it was the only way to get to where he was going by the route he took. And nothing is told of his stay in Tarsus, if indeed he stayed there at all. We don't know that he didn't just pass right through, because scripture does not tell us, and neither does uh, um, history, secular history. Traveling on from Tarsus, the party had to cross another mountain range, directly north of Tarsus. And so they approached, then approached Derb from the south. Verse 41b says that they came to Derb and to Lystra. Verse 1b says a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman 
who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So his mother was Eunice, and we know this from uh, 2 Timothy. His grandmother was named Lois. They figure prominently in letters of Paul to Timothy, remembering, of course, that uh, my rule of thumb is it's really good to be named in the Bible if you're not Ananias and Sapphira and a few others. Lois and Eunice were highly thought of Christians in the early church. Now, for Eunice to marry a Greek Gentile at the time was to break Jewish law. This was not allowed. And people have wondered why as a Jewish believer she was allowed to do this. Well, we know from Paul's Paul's first trip to Durham and Lystra that these towns had a very small Jewish community with little influence in that region. And it is surmised for this reason that there were few suitable Jewish men that she was allowed to marry outside Judaism. While the ESV translation says that Timothy's father was a Greek, a more accurate reading would be that his father had been Greek, implying that his father was dead. The past tense used in Greek showed that he was no longer alive. Timothy, Second um, Timothy one five, tells of Eunice's um, uh, sincere Jewish faith. There, Paul writes to Timothy, "I am reminded of your Timothy's sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well." And Second Timothy uh, three fifteen speaks of Timothy's early instruction in Hebrew scriptures. Eunice, though married to a Gentile, with a son therefore seen as a Gentile also, chose to raise him as Jewish and take him to uh, have him instructed in the scriptures. Indeed, it was the duty of a Jewish parent married to a Gentile Note that I just said parent. It didn't matter if it was a Jewish woman married to a Gentile man or a uh, Jewish man married to a Gentile woman. It was their duty within Judaism to instruct their uh, children in Jewish law. And this Eunice had done. Eunice now was identified also as a Christian believer And she was undoubtedly one of those converted in Lystra by Paul and Barnabas on their first visit to there the previous year, which was A.D. 48. Verse 2 says, He, and this again is Timothy, was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now, Lystra and Iconium were several days' travel apart. They were not side-by-side towns. But undoubtedly the Christians in the area kept in touch as best they could. Timothy was thus known by the Christians of the surrounding area to be of superior character. Verse 3a says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. 
And here is the reason that God directed Paul in his ministry to take a backward approach to his previous missionary trip. If he had repeated his trip, he would have met Timothy in the last city on his second missionary trip. Instead, he meets Timothy at the very beginning of the trip. And this will prove important knowing that Timothy was of Greek father because we're going to see later that Paul doesn't just repeat his last trip, but he then ventures into Europe by way of Greece on this trip and having a native speaking Greek with him is going to be of importance. And remember Silas that he took with him. He took with him from the Jerusalem church. Silas was a Hebrew Christian. Paul was sort of in between, but Timothy passed for Gentile, and to his to his sad discomfort he passed for Gentile. So Paul wanted Timothy on the trip, and it continues, and he, and that's Paul, took him, Timothy, and circumcised him because of the Jews who, who were in these places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now what? We've just spent all of the last chapter in a fight with the Jerusalem church, the Judaizers who had come from the uh, party of the Pharisees to, to Syrian Antioch, saying that everybody must be circum- any Gentile must be circumcised and be under Jewish law. And Paul argues strongly against it. And the first thing that happens, he gets to Derb, runs into Timothy, and circumcises him. Okay? But Paul does this not because of bowing to Jewish law, but to bow to Jewish sensibilities. Paul later writes that he tries to be all things to all people, and an uncircumcised Timothy would have closed the doors to the Jewish synagogues that Paul always went to first in his ministry. He would not have been able to bring Timothy with him if he had brought Timothy into a synagogue. There would have been a riot, if not a stoning of both men. It was not to be done. An uncircumcised Timothy would have closed the door to the evangelization of the Jews, still dear to the heart of Paul, even as his approach is now more to the Gentiles. So Timothy, though a Jew, technically, (laughs) undergoes an adult circumcision that Gentiles are not required to have. Oh, my goodness. Verse 4 says, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, the cities, the Christians in the cities, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy visited the churches that had been planted 
on Paul and Barnabas' first trip, uh, first journey through Galatia. Other congregations had undoubtedly sprung up in the countryside because not everybody could make trips into the cities. And just of a note, just as in Cyprus, when it says that Paul went to Iconium and city in Antioch and Lystra and Derb, they also stopped in the small settlements along the way and preached there. So these other congregations had undoubtedly sprung up in these areas. And one of the chief reasons for him going to all these areas was that they had copies of the letter from the Jerusalem church to the Gentiles that they handed out. Uh, We see that when it said uh, they delivered to them for observance. Okay, that's language saying that they had a letter that they would leave with the congregation for them to read. And while that letter was not explicitly written to them, because remember that letter was written to the Syrian Antioch church, it backed up the message of Paul's, the letter that he had written to the Galatians at the time that the controversy was instigated. Remember he wrote to the Galatian church. We have that letter today. In our Bible, it is the epistle to the Galatians. And at there, he gave the reasons that Jewish law was not to be observed by Gentile Christians. And this letter backed up that letter of a year before to the Galatian church. It says this message was thus delivered by Paul. And brought great joy to all those churches they visited. Verse 5 concludes, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And that was and is the sole purpose of evangelization. And And thus this group of Paul, Silas, and Timothy accomplished this outreach in Derb, Lystra, and on into Iconium and city in Antioch. So at the dinner table last night, Aaron and I were kicking around the change from patrilineal assignment of Jewish lineage to matrilineal. The idea of Jewishness coming from the mother's line and And for the life of me, and I am here to tell you today that I do not quite understand why that was done, but I've got a theory. But neither do the Jews. The Jews don't know why it was done. They just know that it was done between 10 AD and 70 AD. And Christians don't even address it, so I don't know. And so, you know, I'm saying, why? You know, the fact that it happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the destruction of the Jewish temple really means something, okay? And Aaron said, well, you know the answer is Jesus. And yeah, I know the answer is Jesus, okay? One of my favorite jokes from 40 years ago. And Aaron said, please don't tell this joke. She said, nobody ever gets it. Nobody laughs. They don't think it's funny. So now you know that at the, at the, when I deliver the punchline, you're supposed to laugh, right? Okay? 
And I'm looking it up. This is used a lot in sermons now, but we heard it a long time ago. And um, so the senior pastor of a large church had a children's sermon every week. And I've been in churches that do this. They call the children up. The, uh, sometimes the pastor sits on the step. This was done at Twin Peaks Church uh, with some of the pastors there. And the children gather around. And always the point of the sermon, you, you know, is to drive home that Jesus is, is, is the answer to everything. Okay, Jesus is the answer. And this is the point of every sermon. So this, this crisp fall day, the pastor calls the children up around him and says... What is small and gray with a big bushy tail and gathers acorns and hides them in the hollows of the tree to eat during the coming winter? And all the children sit there and stare at him until one six-year-old boy holds up his hand. And uh, the pastor asks, do you have the answer, Billy? And the boy says, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. Okay, Robin laughed. Thank you, Robin. (laughs) Anyway, I know the answer is Jesus. And this is where we were with this change from patrilineal of 2,000, more than 2,000, 3,000 years in the Jewish Jewish church. Changing 3,000 years of Jewish law at the time of Jesus. Well, you know the answer is Jesus. And we know this for sure by the Jewish historians' own agreement that this happened at that time. It coincides with Jesus' ministry, crucifixion, resurrection, the establishment of the Christian church, and the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem as a whole. But what does this change signify? Perhaps it means nothing more than another of God's actions announcing the end of Judaism and the, the kingdom of Christ. Maybe that's all it is. Remember the sequence of events commencing with the crucifixion. The temple's curtains were torn in two. That is attested to by I believe the Mishnah even mentions this, that it was torn, allowing the common man to come to God. The Holy of Holies had been breached. Do you remember the, I preached about the earthquakes that ravaged Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. It destroyed the meeting hall of the Sanhedrin that Jesus was tried in. And we know this from the Bible, that the Sanhedrin had to, when they were going to convict Peter of blasphemy, they had to meet in the marketplace. Okay? So they've been removed by God from their meeting hall. And they're meeting in a marketplace. I talked to you about the 40-foot tall temple doors that had to be closed by several priests. And after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the doors would no longer stay shut. They would close them every night and lock them. And in the morning, they would be open. This is written about in the Mishnah. The scarlet ribbon 
to mark the atonement of the nation of Israel, they would drive a what was called the scapegoat out of Jerusalem with a half a ribbon tied to his neck, dyed scarlet, and half tied to the temple gates. And they drove the goat out into the wilderness. And most years, the one on the temple gates turned white, signifying to the Jews that their sins were atoned for. After Jesus' crucifixion, it never happened again. It is written about in the Mishnah. And then the utter destruction of the temple to never be rebuilt. Was this change from patrilineal Jewishness to signify that with the destruction of the temple and the resulting loss of genealogical records that Judaism no longer had family histories that could be traced? And what does that mean? Well, who was the Messiah that the Jews are waiting for? He was to be a son of David. They have no way to know if there is a son of David. There is no way in the world that they can be waiting for the Messiah, first of all, because the Messiah has come, but second of all, because they don't have records. That with the loss of those records, the Messiah cannot be proved to be of the house of David. With the destruction of the temple came the end of the sacrificial system that we saw. And we saw what the Mishnah substituted it with. They substituted it with prayers. Praying is fine. Prayers are great. But the God-ordained sacrificial system was done away with at the temple and a new one was instituted through the writings of the Mishnah around 100 AD. They had to find another way to atone for their sins. Was the elimination of the patrilineal Judaism the sign that God had officially ended Judaism? That it no longer existed as a God-ordained religion, but it had now slipped into a man-ordained religion? I think so. And it does not make me popular to say that Judaism no longer exists. But the kingdom of God has arrived with the church of Jesus Christ. And I do believe that Judaism was ended by God through the events of 10 to 70 AD, just like the Jewish system. Let's close in prayer.